Hey, Mike Worland here, co-host of the Prairie Pod with Megan Binich. I, I can't join Megan today on the bonus episode. I'm out here conducting uh, bumblebee surveys at Blue Mound State Park. And I'll tell you, this place is absolutely gorgeous. If you haven't been here, I highly recommend it. Uh, you, may, you may be able to pick up the, the gentle prairie breeze blowing around me now. Um, there's a, there was a kingbird singing next to me a minute ago. We'll see if he, if he starts up again. Yeah, it's awesome out here. You know, these days are uh, these days make me so thankful for this job because they're such a pleasure. But not every day is like this. Some days we are sitting in meetings with partners talking about or figuring out the best way to conserve prairie in the state. That's a big part of my job. For much of our, for much of the Nagame Wildlife Program, it's a big part of of others' jobs as well, conserving prairie. So if you are a prairie advocate. Uh, please remember the Non-Game Wildlife Program. We are basically completely dependent on donations. So, yeah, your, your, your dollars will be put to work, I promise you. Go to our website or donate on your Minnesota state tax returns. I will stop babbling. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. Oh my gosh, the fun doesn't stop on season three, episode 10, Land Manager Takeover. Why is there so much singing? I don't know, but I'm Megan Benage. I'm a regional ecologist with the DNR, and I am joined again by my fabulous prairie people, the Prairie and Pollinator Restoration Field Day team, and this is going to be part two of our Land Manager Takeover. Let's go ahead and round robin, introduce ourselves, just because you're still some new voices on the podcast so folks know who y'all are. Ian. Uh, I'm a graduate student at the University of Minnesota studying native bees and the landscapes that they live in. Good work, Gina. Hi, uh, my name is Gina Quirum and I'm with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources with the Legacy Fund Restoration Evaluation Program. Nina. Hello, I'm Nina Hill. I am Science Fellow with the Nature Conservancy talking to you from Fargo, North Dakota today. Paul. I'm Paul Charland. I'm a fire management specialist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Interior Region 3, and I'm also a co-coordinator for the Prairie Reconstruction Initiative. Perfect. Okay. We might all be on a little bit of a struggle bus because it's close to lunchtime for us while we're recording this, but we're going to make sure that we get out of the struggle and bring great prairie knowledge to you. So, if you missed our last episode, we kind of broke this up into two parts for our land manager takeover. So the first part, we covered establishment phase, cost, and climate change. And in this one, we're going to talk about management. So we're going to answer all of your burning questions. Recycling a joke from last time. Recycling jokes is good for the environment, too. <laughs> it is because I said it is. Okay. <laughs> As always, you know that we'd rather be in the field with you. We learned so much from you, and I'm so appreciative that you guys submitted to us all of your land manager questions that you have so that we could build this podcast around stuff that you want to know, because we want this to be useful for you. That's the whole goal of the Prairie Pod, sharing in the partnership and learning from each other. So hopefully we'll be back on the Prairie soon so that we can continue that learning from you, which is an important piece of this puzzle. Okay. Let's jump right in. Gina, you want to read this first question? 
I would love to, Megan. So this is a question that we got from one of our fabulous land managers. My question pertains to a 10 plus year old reconstruction. The current thinking is that it should have been short grass based on the remnants in the area. Bull snakes have been extirpated from the area, etc. More is known today than back then. That's fine. However, the quality of the reconstruction stinks. That's a technical term. It's primarily big blue stem and Indian grass and basically forbless. Megan? I'm just laughing. I'm laughing first at the word forbless, the technical term. And then I also thought this while we were recording the last episode, but you just have the best radio voice. Like, I want you to read me stories. I want you to come over here and be like, Megan, okay, I'm going to read you this bedtime story so that you can go to sleep. It's fabulous. Gina, you've got a future in radio, sister. You've got a future in radio. I like it. I um, can have a backup plan. Okay. I'm going to pause for a second and then finish the question because there's oh. a little more. All right. I messed you up. No, that's okay. Uh, it's basically Forbless. Last season, we did a fall burn in an attempt to promote Forbes. Any other ideas? Also, we cannot disturb the soil. Okay. I like this. I mean, it's sad. Uh, I have a very short answer for this one, and we can go into a lot more detail, but really... The short answer is an answer you're not going to like, and I apologize for that, but you're going to have to start over. And the reason why I say that is because basically, just like we talked about in the last episode, all of those grasses have been given a huge head start, and they've taken up space, and they've taken up space above ground, and they've taken up space below ground. And the only way you're going to get these little forbs to get in there so that you don't have a forbless situation, and it can become forbulous in a good way. Nina, I'm using your word from last time. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, is that you're going to have to start over because there's just pretty much no way without disturbing it that you can create that space. The best way to do it, since you can't disturb the soil, and I actually think that's a good thing. I don't like disturbing soil. I try to avoid it as much as possible because anytime you disturb the soil, like if you cultivate it or you till it, it's basically like a bomb going off underneath the soil and you're incredibly destroying the soil structure that's been built through time. And you're incre you're also destroying all of these connections between the microorganisms that live in the soil. And it takes a while for those connections to be built back. It takes time. And there's lots of different factors that are involved in how long it takes. And you can learn more about that in our Roots episode that just aired a couple weeks ago. It's how we wrapped up the main part of the season when we talked about Prairie Roots here in season three. So these are sad day answers brought to you by Megan and Gina, but you pretty much gotta start over. I would do it by mowing the site and then treating it with herbicide. Um, I know that some folks who are listening, they don't like to use chemical and I totally understand that. But when you're talking, I'm assuming you're talking about a fairly large site. And so you could also use other things um, to site prep the area, like putting down, uh, you could use the smother method. So you're basically trying to put down plastic or cardboard or anything that essentially prevents sun from getting to everything that's growing on the prairie. You still have to mow first, so that way you can put um, those structures down. It takes a full season for that to work, a full season using the smother method for site prep, because you're also trying, you're not just trying to kill the vegetation, you're trying to kill the seeds that are in the soil, and that takes time. 
Um, it's not a bad thing that it takes time. I just want to be clear. So if you wanted to do it faster, then I would recommend a couple, you know, broadcast herbicide treatments and then seed into that. In this case, because you can't disturb the soil at all, um, the smother method and doing it in pieces might actually work really well for you because one of the challenges, even with using herbicide, is that you're going to have this sod that's still connected. And even if it's dead sod, right, it's going to create a barrier for you to get good seed to soil contact. And I know the smother method is one um, that we don't often think about, but the Xerces Society, for example, has come up with some pretty interesting ways to do large areas and to get um, large coverings that basically go over top of the soil for a season. Gina, you look like you have things you want to say. I, I was just thinking about the Xerces Society. Um, and yeah, we there's, you know, there's a lot of people that have tried interceding into some of these really dense, well-established, um, basically grass fields. And the, the evidence coming out of Minnesota is that, that that's really hard. It's not working super well. Um, Sugal Adewich and Julia Bonin at the U of M looked at uh, a number of prairies in the state and how, how things have progressed over time as people have tried to introduce more diversity. And their, their answer was basically, if it doesn't start well, it's not going to get better over time. So like you're saying, kind of going back to going back to the to the laying down the groundwork and and starting over might be the best plan. Yeah, and the Xerces Society has a really great guide about interseeding. And essentially, when interseeding works is when you can introduce disturbance into the system to give what you're interseeding a chance so that it's not fighting everything else that has such a head start in front of it. So it's a great guide. I love it because they used research and practitioner experience. And th to me, those are the best. That's the best when you combine the real knowledge of people who are working on the prairies every day. And then you also combine what's been proven through research. Then I feel like you really start to understand the puzzle. It's, it comes together and you can figure it out. So there's a great guide. Um, I know there's a couple of folks from DNR who uh, contributed to that from the practitioner experience side. And so I think they did a really nice job of covering lots of different scenarios and situations and how you might make it work. But in every case, you you have to create seed to soil contact. You have to create that that connection. And a lot of times I hear people say, well, oh, I can burn it and then I overseed it and that works. The thing you have to remember is that most of your prairie is below ground. Most of the action is below ground. And so even if you burn it, you still have two thirds of the biomass below ground that you're asking those seeds to compete with and find root space. So you really need to do something to kind of make, like break through it. And so that's why in this case, I think the smother method for them might work really well. Actually, I'm changing what I said initially. You might use herbicide, but I don't think you can just use that alone because like I said, you're gonna have that dead sod mat. And if you can't till, even lightly till to get some of that um, soil exposed, I think you're gonna have to do something like the smother method, which essentially kills everything dead. And then you do end up with bare, bare soil underneath. I'm doing this in my yard right now. It's kind of fun to see how it works. All right, Megan, are you ready for this? I'm ready. I want to plug caution around using plugs, <laughs> <laughs> right? So we, as an evaluation program, have seen 
a number of cases where people have tried to introduce for diversity by planting plugs, right? And I think there's this assumption that if you're planting a plug, it's a plant that's got a little head start, it's got some root mass, you know, you can get in there and maybe get a little bit more competitive with that sod mat. Um, but plugs can be really finicky too, and they're expensive, and it takes a lot of investment. If you're planting them when it's really dry, you're you're hauling water all over, you got to keep them in really good shape. Um, we, we've just seen people not have the success with plugs that they were hoping for, and so I, I would just caution, um, you know, if there's listeners who are thinking, I'll just dig up some some small places, throw in some plugs, and they'll they'll take really well. That that is something people are struggling with in some areas. It's working in others, but they're not magical, unfortunately. <laughs> Most things aren't. I think the key with plugs, um, and what I would encourage people to do is, yeah, if you're seeding into already established grass, that's not going to work because again, you need that disturbance, you need water, you need all of these other things. What I am promoting is bare root prairie plants and try to do it in the fall. So not in, again, not like in this scenario where you've got established grass, cause I still don't think that works cause you've got a space issue there going on. But if you're talking about a brand new reconstruction or something that's not fully established yet, I think there's a lot of benefit in using bare roots cause those plants are already dormant and you can give them a head start that way without having to water them every day or weekly, that kind of thing. You guys have any other thoughts about this one? Ian, Paul, Nina? I was thinking about what you said about fire and, and if it could be a tool used in conjunction with other tools. So if you were to herbicide and then burn, would that help open it up too? Or is that not, would that not be useful? I was thinking about that. Actually, that's a really good point, Ian. I think it could because then you're, you're killing um, the top growth and the root and then you're getting rid of that biomass so that way you get more of like a bare ground kind of setting but you have to be careful too because sometimes with burning it doesn't take it all the way to the ground so the goal here is seed soil contact that's the goal so i think you can definitely use burning as a tool but you have to kind of look and make sure that how much vegetation did you burn up kind of thing yeah i guess the thing i would add too is you know fire tends not to be particularly surgical so it depends if you're looking at creating that effect over a broader scale, that there's some contribution. But if you're looking at a more narrow, geographically narrow application, that may not be the best way to go. Yeah, I think if you have time, I don't know, I'm loving this smother method. But I also can see utility for a big area for having herbicide and burning sort of take the place of the smother method. So, and again. I know. I know that we need to move on, but I do have one more question that may seem silly because I'm I'm an ecology person, but does anybody ever use something like a roller to press seed into the ground to get better seed to soil contact? Could that be a potential tool in this scenario? Um, some people have used it. Sometimes it's an equipment access issue where we don't always have that equipment. The other thing is even if you're pressing it and you still have that covered sod layer, are the seeds able to get through with that compression? That's kind of, that's the struggle. And I honestly don't know. I don't know how that would work out. Hmm. Things to ponder as we move to question two. What do I do about weeds in my prairie reconstruction? 
And then they, okay, they gave a whole bunch of example different weeds like Coriolisum, pigeon grass, aka foxtail, mullen, thistle in general, and the big one, Canada thistle. So this question wasn't submitted when we asked for, for questions, but this year I have gotten so many of these very similar questions from our managers that I felt like I wanted to throw it in here and just like blanket cover the response because I've gotten it so many times this season. And I think it's because we're having a really humid, pretty wet in most parts of uh, the prairie it, obviously, there's going to be difference, differences in, if you're at, like, the far western part of the Minnesota prairie or the far northern part. But here in southern Minnesota, it's hot, it's humid, and it's been abnormally wet. Um, we're just getting quite quite a bit of rain. And so I think we're with those conditions, you see a flush of a lot of weeds because that makes things grow. When it's, when it's humid like that and it's moist, think weeds are going to come in and they're going to take advantage. So my short answer is stop worrying about weeds. <laughs> stop worrying about them. They're not a problem. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's going to be fine. So most of the weeds that I mentioned are pretty common in new plantings. Um, they might persist in patches and remnants and, and reconstructions. But one of the things you need to remember is they're part of the successional stage. So we mentioned this last time too, but these kinds of weeds, some of them are also really good wildlife food while you're waiting for your prairie to come on. So one of the things that I would caution against is broadcast spraying your reconstruction. A lot of times you can do more damage than good when you take that approach because anytime you spray, no matter what you spray, you're favoring one thing. So if you spray a grass-specific herbicide, for example, and so it's important that you don't spray this early on in a prairie reconstruction unless you're spot spraying in a very targeted way. Please stop broadcast spraying. You are doing more harm than good by killing all of the things that are going to end up fighting these weed battles for you. So you're creating a negative feedback loop instead of a positive feedback loop. Okay, the other thing is that some of these species are really, they're annuals or they're weak perennials, and they typically fade out once, your perennial, once you move through that successional stage and your perennials come on. So again, they're not things that I worry about too much. If you want to, you could mow. There's a good paper out from the Tallgrass Prairie Center in Iowa. Um, basically what mowing does is you're advancing your successional stage. And if you're gonna mow, you would wanna do that once every month through the growing season, so once in June, once in July, once in August, once in September. And you wanna to try to mow at a height that's at least above five inches because the goal here is that you don't wanna to top some of your baby prairie plants that are growing. So you can do that, but some of the things to think about when you, when you mow, and this is from that paper, is that it definitely will increase the number of different weeds that you have, but it doesn't increase their density, so that's a good thing. One of the things that it also does is it increases the size of the grasses and wildflowers that you planted, um, which is good. But then another thing that might not be so great is that it increases grass richness, but not forb richness. And we already know that when we're in a reconstruction, we got problems with walls of grass. <laughs> we got problems with that. So you wanna make sure that we're not setting ourselves up for a situation. And I was just talking to somebody online about this and they were really struggling because they're like, look, I'm a landowner. I don't, my mower doesn't raise that high. 
I don't know what to do. How do I do this? Okay, I'm going to use a cake analogy, and it's not just because I'm hungry. <laughs> when you're making a prairie, you are baking a cake. Gina might be making a lemon cake. I'm going to make a chocolate cake because it's more delicious. But <laughs> that's okay. They're lemon cakes, chocolate cakes, whatever. They're both delicious cakes. You need the same basic ingredients. So you need flour, sugar, salt, baking powder so that you can get a cake. But the additional things that you add, like mowing or burning or a couple more plugs or bare root plants planted over here and a couple other things planted over here are going to change how your cake looks. You're going to end up with a cake. When Gina bakes hers, she's going to have a delicious lemon cake. When I bake mine, I'm going to have a delicious chocolate cake. But we got to stop thinking about prairie reconstructions as if there's only one recipe and one way to make the cake. There's lots of choices. Gina, you look like there's so many things that you want to say. So many, so many. So Megan, what about managers who are struggling because they have noxious weeds like Canada thistle uh, and yes. they're having to manage and trying not to make them angry and bigger and more abundant. Yeah, so we talked about Canada thistle in particular earlier this season in our diversity episode. So go check that out. If you haven't yet, uh, we give a, a long overview of Canada thistle. The thing that you have to remember about Canada thistle, and this is true for pretty much any, any problem in a prairie, there's two very important things that you need to remember. Number one, there is no substitute for diversity ever. Ever. If a functional group is not filled, the number and severity of functional problems, including invasive species, noxious weeds, or temporary problems like foxtail, they are going to be large because you have nothing in the system to fight that battle. What we know about Canada thistle in particular is that we're learning from research that that cool season guild is one of the most important things that we need to fill. So cool season grasses, cool season forbs, that is a guild that's historically been missing from our prairie reconstructions. And because it's missing, we have worse Canada thistle problems. The other thing about Canada thistle is mowing makes it matter and sometimes spraying makes it matter. <laughs> so the best thing that you can do, and again, this is from that 2017 paper from Pauline Drobny and Diane Larson, one of the things that they found is that patients can really pay off. As the reconstruction matured in their study, so 10 years after planting, Canada thistle cover declined in all sites, even without herbicide application. So to me, what I advise managers to do when they have a Canada thistle problem is wait. Be patient. And that's not to say that if you get a new noxious weed or a new invasive and it's only in one tiny part of your prairie, you shouldn't try to fight it. You definitely should. If it's patchy, go ahead and try to try to take care of it. But I have seen plantings, for example, where it's solid Canada thistle in those first two years and it just drops out, provided you're following the golden rule that you built your seed mix with diversity. Let like lean into that resilience of nature. I can't say it enough. Nature is gonna could do amazing things for you. Okay, I'm gonna give you another quote. More golden rules from Megan. So the best analogy that I've ever heard is from Chris Helzer. He works at the Nature Conservancy. Think about all of your weeds as holes in a screen door. 
So our job as managers is to tighten the mesh on that screen door so that we allow those natives to thrive in the majority. But if our goal is to eradicate completely, we're going to fail. That shouldn't be a goal. There should be some baseline of tolerance to have weeds in the system. And again, there's some things that I would be more concerned about than others. But a lot of times if you've given your prairie those tools for success, it's it's gonna do just fine. You just have to remember two critical things, time and patience. It pays off. Do you guys have other, other things you wanna add to this one? I really wanna talk about climate change just for a second. <laughs> okay. I know we talked, <clears throat> we covered this in the last episode, but there's been some new research coming out. Again, these like long-term monitoring studies showing that if you plant in a really wet year, that can, in the short term, make invasives more prevalent. So if this is really something you're concerned about and you're you're planting, of course, we, do, we don't know if a year is going to be wet or not, but overall, Minnesota's getting wetter and the springs are getting wetter and weeds grow really well when they have a lot of water. Um, so if this is something you're really concerned about and you know you've planted in a wet year, um, you know, maybe some of these tools that Megan is talking about, like mowing, early on or something you want to consider a little more um, if those if that early part of the successional process is really important to you. But again, Megan is totally right. You need that diversity. You need all the guilds filled and it's going to take time for those native species to establish well enough to really outcompete the invasives. You also want balance in your seed mix and I didn't say that either. And so I'm usually shooting for some kind of ratio of somewhere between 40 to 45% grass and whatever the math, backwards math is here, 60, 55 to 60% um, wildflowers. If you go much higher than that um, and you don't have good diversity in your grasses, like if you go to 80% forbs or something or 90% forbs, you really have a lot weedier sites, especially if you're talking about doing large acres because grasses are the foundation of your prairie. They're meant to be dominant in your prairie and they're part of what set that baseline structure. They're, they're the skeleton of the prairie, if you will, just like if you think about the skeleton of your body. If you, if you don't have <laughs> a skeleton, you're basically going to be like a pile of skin right like and so it's really important that we have grasses in the prairie to lift it up i've also noticed and this is just practitioner observation that when i don't have grasses in a site where i just do like forb only even in a small plot around my house the forbs are flimsier so they don't um there's not as much competition for them so they don't grow as big and strong and they often flop over a lot more whereas when yes. they have the grasses there as, a, as their skeleton, they don't flop. Ian, do you want to add to that? Oh, it's such a it's such a nightmare. In my own home garden, planting all these different native forbs, they just they get so big, and they they just can't support themselves. And I just end up with this big floppy mass. And I have to end up doing a lot of I have to do a lot of trimming. I have to like support them. I end up using. Um, wire to kind of help hold them together so that they don't just flop on top of each other and shade other plants out that are underneath them. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's, it is like when you plant a lot of these other diverse plants that are maybe more dry adapted, I'm, I'm going on a limb here. They get into these like kind of more gardeny wet 
fertile zones. They just, they don't know what to do. They just go nuts. Uh, <laughs> well, because there's a piece missing, right? So you got to exactly. make sure you have balance and diversity. If you want to learn more about this, because this is a huge topic, you can throw back to season one, episode seven, what you do now matters later. That's our establishment phase management or season two, episode six, bringing diversity back, baby where we talk all about interceding and things you can do. There's also two really good blog posts from the Prairie Ecologist, Saving Pollinators One Thistle at a Time, and Remembering Why We're Fighting Invasive Plants. And then Gina, this one was yours from um, Diane Larson et al, Improving Ecological Restoration to Curb Biotic Invasion. And we'll put those up on the web. Next question. All right, so this one is, um, about moving into our next section and focusing on prescribed burning and refugia. So, Paul, uh, does it matter what timing is used for prescribed burns to not annihilate the larval stage? Are there other management techniques that would be helpful to pollinators? Yeah, so when I think about the timing, actually, I think about that on a couple of scales and a couple of different approaches. So the question really focused on timing the burn. But I think part of the answer is is thinking about the duration or the timing of the impact. So are we thinking about the impact of one burn or are we thinking about the long-term impacts of, of multiple burns, you know, in the same area over time? And so I think we have to, to think about that. That's part of the answer or one of the things I, I, I'm thinking about. Um, and there's the other another big couple of parts of that one of them has to do with our um oh well the problem with the, the term pollinators and we talked about this last week about this just the huge diversity of, of taxa that fit into the title of pollinators are we focused on a single species or a small group or are we thinking about them in general because we certainly have a whole lot of life histories and life cycle needs so um trying to find one answer to fit all, fit all pollinator needs, boy, I think that's going to be hard, tough to do. Um, so one of the things I, I like to think about and I think is important to consider is that, you know, anytime you do a management action like burning, we're going to have some winners or we're going to have some losers. And I, I think that's that can be tough for us sometimes. And, you know, the, the good news is that we're really thinking about the long-term benefit. We you know we want to maintain diversity, we want to maintain vigor. So the, the actions we're taking now are designed to produce, you know, positive benefits over the long term. So that's good. But we do have some short-term impacts too. So again, that question, you know, it kind of comes back to are we thinking short-term or are we thinking more longer-term? Um, and I guess I'll, I'll think about that in a couple of different ways, too. So one way I was thinking about it, Paul, is this just with bees, you have, you know, above ground and below ground nesters. And and like I was saying on the last episode, burning could probably help those below ground nesters, but is probably really detrimental to above ground nesters. So, you know, every action had like you said, there's no silver bullet to to any management um, for pollinators. Yeah, and so the one of the ways I think about this, and I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead into that next part of the answer is, you know, different management techniques. And I, and I think that's part of how we avoid that. Again, so, so it's thinking, I'm going to use Megan's favorite word, the D word, diversity. What? So, 
you know, there's the old joke about, you know, you go to the doctor and say, it hurts when I, when I bend my elbow. The doctor says, well, don't bend your elbow. Well, we can't just say we're not, we're probably not going to say we're not just going to burn. So, so let's think about, again, timing is, is uh, the, the person who sent us this question asked. So how about maybe not just one timing, but diversify the term, time, timing. So we may have some winners when we do it early. But we'll hopefully I'll have a different set of losers and winners when we do it later. So this year, maybe we do a spring burn, maybe next time on a different piece, we're going to do it on a, on, a, on a summer burn on a slightly different piece. So we're balancing out those impacts. So and then so we go into that second part of the question about different management actions. And and I want to step back even a little bit further. And I and so if we're going to do that burn, What's what's the ecological outcome? What is your objective in doing that burn? Um, and I would ask myself, do we have to burn, or is there another management action we can do to hit some of those benefits? So maybe we don't have to think about just burning. Let, let's diversify our, our management actions. Let's diversify our timing. You know, if we do the same thing every time, we're going to drive our system a certain direction. My and mom says that the definition that of insanity, we... when you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result. <laughs> you would know you would know insanity, Megan, right? <laughs> Touche! I was going to ask you, did do, are you holding on to some like lingering resentment where the doctor told you not to not to <laughs> bend your own elbow? <laughs> we need to dig into that in a different podcast. <laughs> Yeah, let's save that for another time. Psychotherapy time with Paul. I don't think we want to go there. <laughs> we don't want to see behind the curtain. <laughs> okay, sorry. Continue. The Wizard yeah, of Oz so, over here. So there's an interesting study. Um, actually, it was, was focused in, in looking at the impacts of fire regimes uh, on legumes and longleaf pine forests. And there was a really great sentence in the abstract and, and their conclusion was we propose that varying the components of fire regimes rather than selecting a particular regime is likely to be important to conserve biodiversity in this and other fire dependent communities and i really think again that's that's kind of where i go with that question so there isn't probably one timing but if we diversify the timing we use over time i think that's powerful and then if we think about diversifying the management actions we use, that probably, again, supports and minimally impacts the broadest range of the components, of our pollinator components and all the other components in our system. So really want to think about um, diversifying our management actions. And so the other question becomes, you know, again, is there a spe specific species you're looking at? In which case, you know, then we can probably learn, think a little bit about the life cycle of that species, its life histories, and what it needs. And we, and if we have an issue, we can, you know, we can tailor it um, for that species. And then the the other little piece to that would be, if we have some species that's maybe a threatened and endangered species, and then, and you know, then it's a very specific set of actions we either we can or we can't or how we work with that species conservation plan to make sure we're not impacting the species any more than we have to. You know, Paul, there's a really interesting example 
that I think kind of feeds into this idea that we need to vary our management in this with the Dakota skipper. So, you know, the we worry about killing caterpillars with burns and things like that and how much refugia we should we leave. But also Dakota skippers benefit from burns because it helps foster more bloom of a lot of their nectar plants. So it's this kind of, um, they need burns, even though they burns could kill them. So it's like a matter of finding that sweet spot in the landscape and within a, and within a site of burning and refugia that I think is really like, what is that sweet spot? I think is an interesting question and how we get there, you know? Jess Peterson talks about it as the tightrope that we have to walk for management because the very thing that keeps the species persisting is also the very thing that can wipe them out. So how do you, how do you, how do you balance your fire regime so that you keep them alive? Yeah, I have a lot of respect for our managers who really have to fight that battle. You know, that's what they do every day and, and trying to try and negotiate that tightrope. That's a that's a tough that's a tough balance to meet. Um, and I and I think that's probably species dependent. Um, I think the, the skipper is a great example, and there's probably a, you know a number of other ones who exist in very small areas. So how do we how do we manage? To do that, how do, we, how do we maintain refugia when we've got a, uh, a species with such a limited uh, distribution or exists in small pockets? And, and so Megan asked me a question recently too about you know how you define refugia. You know what counts as refugia? Well, the, I think the, the skipper example is a great one because there's a, a fairly narrow, I assume, and um, you know, hopefully you'll help me out with this. I assume that there's a very narrow habitat requirement for that species, and it's probably one of the reasons it's limited distribution now. Um, so if we want to maintain refugia for that species, that means we have to protect some of the good stuff. So we can't pick a brome field next to it and call that a refugia for a species that requires a diverse prairie. So when we're creating that refugia, we have to be really honest with ourselves about what we can and what we can't do. And it goes back to our burn objectives. You have an objective. There's something you need to achieve, some ecological outcome you're trying to achieve with that burn. And how do you, how do you decide what that is? Uh, or how do you, you know, how do you balance that with those need to protect other things? And, and that's also going to be very site specific. You know, if, um, we go back to the previous question. We've got this field that's over, you know, dominated by grass. In a situation like that, well, maybe we're going to say, well, we're going to temporarily accept a little more impact on our pollinator than we would otherwise, but because we're, we're hoping for that long-term benefit. So in that case, you know, we might choose a timing that we might otherwise not, or it might be a scale we might otherwise not, but you know, there's a reason you're burning, I assume, and I certainly hope so. So what is it going to take to meet that objective? And well, so again, you're queuing in right up for the next question about refugium <laughs> so that you guys can go, you know, a little dig a little deeper into 
what what we talked about the other day and and what does it really mean when we say refugia because yeah definitely counting the Bromfield next door would not be refugia for Dakota Skipper and it wouldn't be refugia for a lot of other pollinators that are in that prairie there's a, a like versus like kind of thing that's needed yeah so let, I'll read the question here yeah so the the last question um, in our our podcast today is how much refugium is needed when doing a prescribed burn. Um, and so there's a second part to this question, which is what are the key recommendations for making oak savannas more beneficial to pollinators? So maybe we'll tackle those in two pieces. Um, so you were talking a lot about refugia, Paul. Do you have any specific guidelines for how much or what counts as refugia? Well, there's a couple of, you know, I, it's, it's, there are a couple of examples I'll, I'll point to. One I found, which is a, came, comes from the Xerces Society, and they recommended breaking units up into three to five pieces and only burning one of those pieces every year. So we're leaving the, the majority of the unit un, unmanaged. Um, and Megan, I believe you said once that the, the, the department has guidelines that the, they offer up. So I'm going to go back to my idea of your burn objective. You know, what is it you need to accomplish? You know, what's the state of that of that particular parcel you're looking at? Again, if it's if it's rapidly converting to you know a woody dominated site or you know a brome field, to to get where you need to be, you may have to be more aggressive. So I would my best answer is. Leave as much as you can leave, but still meet your burn objectives. And I think I'm hearing a couple different things kind of emerge from this too, Paul. Is, is one is that you might be using fire as a tool for achieving a goal. And then there's potentially this other type of burn that you're doing to maintain like a natural ecological process, which may just be like um, a matter of, I'm just going to do this because it's natural to my ecosystem. I'm not specifically trying to control anything. Um, is that that accurate? Is that kind of, there's kind of like two different themes in burning? Yeah, there is. I'm really glad you brought that up. And I think fire is kind of unique in that, in that sense. And, you know, we recognize the need for that process and the multiple impacts it has, but we also tend to use fire to achieve a specific objectives. So yeah, figuring out how to meet those objectives on a site, you know, where we have a particular need versus just allowing it to, to fulfill its role. Again, that's part of those challenges that our, our managers face on a daily basis. But, you know, those are the things we need to, fig to, to keep in mind if we want to maintain our diversity and we want to, you know, address certain particular needs that we have to on a site. Can I talk about the Wheel of Fire really quickly? Yeah. Once you brought it up, how can we not hear about the Wheel of the Fire? The Wheel of Fire! <laughs> okay, sorry, Finding Nemo throwback. So this is something we brought up in Season 2, Episode 8, The Hills Are Ablaze. And the Wheel of Fire is this idea that if, if you are not using burning as an objective to try to deal with woodies or some type of invasion, but if you're just using burning as part of the natural process, because we all know that prairies need disturbance in order to thrive and survive, 
the best way that you can be unbiased is if you randomize how frequently and when you're going to burn. So I have this idea. Please, somebody build me this. I want a wheel the size of the Price is Right wheel. I want it to be huge. I want it to make noise. And when you spin it, it's going to have a big outer circle, just like the Price is Right wheel. And then it's going to have an inner circle. And that outer circle is going to tell you um, what season you're going to burn in. And that inner circle is going to give you the next time that you're going to burn. So it might be like one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 15 year, 20 year, 25 year. Okay, sorry, too far, too too many. But, but so you spin the wheel. And then when you stop, I want the wheel to make a sound that's like, fire. <laughs> and it'll tell you what to do. Obviously, Mike Worland, my normal podcast co-host, told me that we could just easily do a random numbers chart. Mike, I know that you're listening to this. How boring. Let's get a wheel of fire and make this happen. Because it, you have to find a way to take your own bias out of it. Because otherwise, you're going to want to do what's easiest or you're gonna do what is familiar to you. So you might just keep doing spring burning, not because it's the best thing ecologically, but because that is when you have staff and resources and also because that's what you're used to doing, right? So we need to find something, some mechanism that's gonna break us out of that um, prescribed pattern that isn't necessarily an ecological pattern. So my my attempt at this is to have a wheel of fire so that we can truly randomize how frequently we're burning and when we're burning. So I want to do I do want to pause for a serious note in that um, with all due respect to our fire fire practitioners is that safety has to fit into that that is absolutely an important part of the planning process. And I agree with you. We have to give them complete credit for that. You know, it's, it's their own safety, it's the public safety. So within all those other considerations, we, we need to make sure we're keeping safety in mind and that um, that is probably gonna impact a lot of those other decisions. I mean, we can't just do, be random, just be random you know, at the risk of our, our, our property, ourselves, lives, anything like that. So just that's something I think is important to remember. We, we really strive for that diversity, and I, I think we need to continue to strive to get better, to be more diverse, as long as we can do it in a safe way. So. Fair that's point. Right. Fair point. It kind of brought down the excitement of my wheel of fire, but, you know, fair point. <laughs> Nina, you were going to say something. Yeah, I appreciate this conversation, and... Uh, the perspectives. Um, in our previous podcast, we talked a little bit about climate change and what we can do to make our prairies more um, resilient and adaptable towards future changing conditions. And we said genetic diversity is great, species diversity is great, and now we're hearing management diversity is great. Yeah, we want to give refugia in both time and space. Um, for our insect friends. And, um, you know, one way we can do that is, you know, switch up the regime. And that would help those populations to adapt to those changing conditions. Because if a fire is 
on the landscape in the spring or, you know, the same time every year, it's going to affect the phenology of that vegetation at that time of year. So, you know, it may not give opportunity for those other traits to develop um, within the population. So I think when we start thinking about climate change and how that's really going to impact a lot of our other uh, decision-making processes, you know, uh, even as we think about management, we can think about what climate is going to be doing to change the water, the, um, you know, the conditions on our landscape, and how then we would, how those might interact with the fire or the management that we're choosing to do there. Um, yeah, so I think it's worth considering and, you know, and then how we're move, managing and using those tools moving forward. So, yeah, diversity is fabulous and even at all scales. So thanks, Paul. <laughs> Hashtag Forbulus. Okay, really quick, because um, we are running out of time. I want to make sure we get to this part. Chat a little bit, Ian, um, about oak savannas and how we can make those more beneficial to pollinators. Again, I know that's a big question because there are different pollinators with different needs, but go for it. Two minutes, man. You can do this. All right. Yeah, okay. So oak savannas, let's go. Uh, they are an ecotone between forests and prairies. So um, that means they're a unique habitat and that they share characteristics with both of those types of habitats. Um, so burning is an important part of oak savannas, just like we were talking about. And we need to think about that too. Uh, but another element of oak savannas is that they have a canopy cover, unlike in prairies. And so managing that canopy cover is a part of helping that understory diversity thrive. So a lot of times oak savannas will have some element of non-fire adapted trees coming. And they may not be removed by fire, especially if they're older trees. Um, so some elements of thinning the canopy to allow only those fire adapted trees will allow more light and allow more forbs to kind of come out. And I think that that is one of the along with all the prairie management, uh, making sure that we're managing the canopy too um, is an important part of oak savanna restoration. So um, back in Michigan, when we were studying oak savanna restoration, we found that by thinning the canopy and uh, restoring burning, we got higher abundance and diversity. And this was work done by Mitch Littow um, in oak savanna restorations. So yeah, this, this idea of opening up the canopy and making sure we're restoring these disturbance regimes really helps bring pollinators back too. And it's all going back to that theme of let's op let's get more diversity. You know, more sunlight means more diversity, typically kind of beating back the shade and allowing for those different kinds of niches like shade plants and sunlight plants to kind of get more in balance. And yeah, that's, that's my shtick. I'm really proud of you. You did that really quickly. We're at the end. I can't even. I can't even believe it. This this one just went and we were done. I can't even believe how fast it went. I learned. I always learn from all of you. I just want to say thank you for all of you taking the time to record today so that we could answer these good land manager questions. I know that in some cases. The question is, they're good questions, but they're so big, it's hard to answer them in such a short time block. So we definitely encourage you to keep learning, to keep looking at the resources on the website, to listen to past episodes, and reach out to other groups. Ask 
questions. Part of learning is being curious. We can't learn if we're not willing to try something new and if we're not willing to listen to each other. And so that's why I love this team that's here today in our land manager takeover of the Prairie Pod because that's what we do. That's what we're all about. We want to listen and learn from you. And we hope that there will be a time soon when we're back on the prairie with you because that is truly sometimes you need to be in the field. That's where the real work happens. That's where the real learning happens, just organically. You guys have anything, like any final thoughts? I'd like to say to say thanks, Megan. So when we realized we weren't going to be able to do a field day this year, we were searching for an answer. Megan volunteered or proposed using the Prairie Podcast as an alternative. And um, I'm so far, I'm pretty happy with how it worked out. And I'm certainly happy that we had the opportunity to, to the group of us to sit down together and to, um, I think it was Ian's idea to do the land manager takeover. So I'm glad we were able to pull those things together to have a way to, to get some information out. And so I'd like to thank Megan and the DNR for, for hosting us. And Mike, who who stepped aside in his hosting spot so that we could have so many guests today. So Mike Worland, my fellow co-host, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. Thanks, Paul. That means a lot. I'm happy that we could do it. I'm happy the podcast exists. And a lot of our listeners may not know this, but Jess and I started the podcast as a virtual field day. That was our idea. We were kind of collectively thinking about how we could share prairie knowledge amongst all of the great people who are in the prairie partnership, making good decisions and trying new things. And we realized that even if we had three field days a year and we had 60 people attend, we did that math for the duration of our career. We won't tell you how much longer we have. <laughs> we don't want to date ourselves here, but we realized that we weren't gonna have the impact that we wanted to have or be able to share knowledge with as many folks as we wanted to. And so that's, the podcast was created as a virtual field day. So it's nice to kind of come back to that and answer all of your great questions that you submitted. Nina, Ian, Gina, any final, final words of wisdom? I think we should encourage everyone to keep thinking of more questions and send us more questions in the future. So we can do this again. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. We definitely should do this again. Ian, it sounds like you're totally hooked on this now. <laughs> podcast for everyone. <laughs> Let's podcast all the time. I don't need to write a thesis. What's that? Oh, what? I'm busy podcasting, Dan Carabo. <laughs> I was told I wasn't allowed to be interested in birds until I was done with my thesis. <laughs> Those are, are words for my... It's difficult when you're an ecologist because you want you're interested in all the things. Well, thanks so much for listening today. Don't get too sad, even though this really is our final episode, really, really, because there's lots of Prairie Pod episodes to revisit and re-listen to on our website. Please go rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It helps us bring in more Prairie Peeps like you, and we can spread the knowledge. We hope that you still have many more days on the Prairie. Don't forget to get out there. That's where the real work happens. Discover the prairie. It's majestic and wondrous and beautiful. And it's a frontier where we still don't know so many things about. So get out there and discover. Look for the little things that you didn't see before. Send us pictures of what you found. We're headed into my favorite season. The blue stems turning purple, the Indian grass is getting golden, and the prairie drop seed still smells like buttered popcorn. So get out there and discover the prairie on one of your fabulous public lands. You are a landowner and you deserve to explore. 
This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. High five, Prairie Peeps! High five! Woo-hoo. High five! Yeah, gentian season coming up soon. Get out there! <laughs> I love it.